Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Cindy Roth, who serves as the president and CEO of the West Virginia University Foundation. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you so much, Brent. So Cindy and I had the opportunity to meet uh, remotely following the Big 12 Development Conference. We didn't have the chance to connect in person, unfortunately, there, but we did do a quick follow-up. And after speaking with Cindy, I just knew we had to get her on the show because there are not a lot of people who have done what Cindy has done. And you'll know what I'm talking about here shortly. On that note, Cindy, one of the favorite questions I have for our guests is to just better understand your own higher education journey. Uh, and I can say that having in, uh, interviewed now over a hundred advancement leaders, many of your peers around the country, I have yet to interview anybody in your seat as a foundation CEO who started as a nurse in undergrad. So tell me about Cindy in high school and what led her to study at the University of Pittsburgh. Well, thanks so much again, Brent. Hi, everyone. Um, you know, I always wanted to follow in my sister's footsteps. We all have role models. My sister was one of them and she was a nurse. So I had to be a nurse just like her. So I embarked on my nursing career at Pitt, got my BSN many years ago, started in the ICU and absolutely loved it. And I knew I wanted to go back to my master's degree. And I also knew that I couldn't be a typical nurse because I was a leader all the time in college and high school. So the idea was, well, what kind of a master's should I get? And actually some of my very strong nursing um, mentors encouraged me not to get one in nursing, but to get it outside of nursing. So I got my master's degree at Carnegie Mellon in public management in the Heinz School of Public Policy. So that again, made me unique. And I rose to the ranks of a hospital administrator um, and had been wonderfully um, blessed with a really exciting career for at least two and a half decades in that well, part. Well, Cindy, let's talk about that. Um, but first I just have to go back because my understanding is while maybe advancement was not yet a twinkle in your eye, uh, you did have leadership roles on campus. And am I right in that you served as the president of your senior class at Pitt? That's a pretty big deal. I was president of my senior class at the University of Pittsburgh. I also then after graduation, I was very active in the Alumni Association. I became president of the Alumni Association at a national level. Um, and then I even became um, a trustee at the University of Pittsburgh. What a wonderful fortune to be able to do that at an undergrad place. I was the youngest trustee I think they ever had. Um, but I, my entire life has been in the nonprofit world and served on many different board, boards throughout Western Pennsylvania. But I'm a first generation college grad. So the ability for me to be able to have a passion about trying to help that next generation, that was a, that's a no brainer all the time. So I, I think it. that really helped position me pretty well. I love it. And I just have to ask, it is uh, June 16th as we record this, it'll be released later this summer. We would consider this a stressful time of year, potentially in the advancement space, June 30th, right around the corner. I am going to go out on a limb and say that that stress must pale in comparison to what you experience as a nurse in the ICU. And so Completely. when you think about, yeah. yeah, 
when you think about that time of your life and the kind of stress and experiences, and I wouldn't ask you to share, you know, them here, but um, it just had to be such a formative and, and emotional period. It is, Brent. You know, one of the things that I think strong universities teach us, and especially I think in the caregiving roles, whether it's physicians, nurses, dentists, pharmacists, doesn't matter. If you're in healthcare, you have to understand critical thinking and you have to be able to make decisions quickly. And in the ICU, it literally means life or death. The patient's life is there. It's, it's a grave level of responsibility and things can get kind of hairy. And so you have to work in orchestration as a team. It's probably one of the best definitions of a team that can come together. And if you step away after somebody has a critical event, like an arrest or something, and their heart stops and you have to all come together. And if they make it, then the ability to be able to be there is just like none other to, to recognize that this team came together. And no matter whether they made it or didn't, the nurses were always there to care for the holistic side of the whole family. And that's who I am. So I'm a very much a caregiving kind of a person. I'm sort of the resident nurse here, here now that I'm even not, not doing it anymore. I do keep my RN license. Um, and that's an important thing for me because I worked hard to get that. So um, I think it's like riding a bike. Once a nurse, mm -hmm. always a nurse. And you never let that go. But the pressure is completely different than higher ed. Um, I, I quick 30 second story. I had, because in ICU, you move pretty quickly because you have to. Um, again, the patient life is at stake. So you might make decisions quickly and move. When I first went into academia um, in advancement, people would say, hey, Cindy, slow down. The patient won't die. In other words, it wasn't about the patient. It was about building relationships. And so I found myself, I would leave people kind of in my dust <laughs> because I had all these great ideas and I would charge through really hard. And again, always learning how to adjust uh, to our environment. And I think it allowed me to understand, stop, listen, take full account of everything that the team offers. And I literally put a, a little post-it note on my screen that said, slow down, the patient won't die. So again, because I wasn't dealing, we weren't dealing with patients. We were dealing with relationships and you never wanna kill a relationship. I'm a big relationship person, but there's not a patient. So it was really interesting, huge lessons for me a long time ago. Cindy, I often ask people uh, who have worked in the advancement space, what their most memorable gift experience has been. If there are any stories that stand out, I'm going to pivot that a little bit for you. When you think about moments in that ICU with that intensity, are there specific patients or experiences that you remember that you're particularly proud of, or that, you know, maybe the odds weren't great, but things worked out for that team, for the patient? I mean, there have to just be countless memories, but does anything stand out? 
I think the I think a huge case for me was um, a neuro patient, which is the brain. Um, they had a bleed inside the head, and um, they wouldn't stop seizing and having seizures. And so, you know, it was a really fragile time and very tenuous up and down. Literally, I sat in that room, didn't leave the room and did checks every five minutes because they could change that quickly. It could change that quickly. And if it changed a certain way, you had to get a hold of the physician, the surgeon immediately. And, um, and, it, and the team made it. And it was a, an incredible team effort because it was a it was a person in their late 30s. They were not old, and um, doesn't matter if they're older or not. But they were so young. I think everybody had that feeling of oh my gosh, this is too close to our age. And um, so yeah, that was my most memorable clinical type moment mm. where everyone stepped back, and from the neurosurgeon the whole way through to the respiratory therapists and the other nurses. And yeah, it was pretty impressive. So So you then ended up going down this uh, path, which I also haven't interviewed on the podcast of hospital administration. I know that you spent a bunch of time prior to your pivot into the advancement world at the West Penn Allegheny Health System. What does that mean? What do you do as a hospital administrator? What was your role at that time? Um, I had it was a chief nursing officer and vice president for patient care. So I had, um, gee, I don't know, I don't even want to count. I don't know how many I had almost, I guess, about a 1000 people total in the division, because it was all healthcare, um, the whole caregiving team, it was dietary pharmacy, um, those kinds of other ancillary services. And I think the challenge there was to make sure that staff didn't feel burnt out and that they felt appreciated. Study after study after study continues to say for all employees, but especially in healthcare, salary is actually not the number one driver of happiness and satisfaction in jobs. Staff want to feel appreciated. They want to feel that they're valued that their opinion matters and that the work that they do makes a difference. So you could take that and you can translate that to any discipline, which is, I did, I did that as a hospital administrator and we had budgets and healthcare cuts and pressures from the federal government with tightening the belts and all those other things that happened that became normal and you had to react. But the idea is to never cut the core, never cut the caregiving team because we were not going to compromise patient care. And it means to stay true to your values and to what you know is right. So again, now translate over to here. I did the same, the whole idea was stay true to our values. What is our culture? What is the culture that we think matters to us? so that we can go out and tell donors of all ages and get them excited to say, West Virginia University, WVU Medicine, whether it's cancer, neuro, heart, children's, doesn't matter, but they're, it mat- but they're worthy of an investment of their money. So up to this point in your career though, 
nothing indicates that after serving as the chief nursing officer and operating that environment, that fast forward a few years, you're gonna be in a leadership role at the West Virginia University Foundation. So how possibly along the way did that idea get sparked? Oh, you know, um, I was serving as an associate vice chancellor. Well, well let's rewind a little bit. Um, yeah, I really, was, let's talk about Pitt. I mean, Pitt yeah, got you I back. Was, I, was, yeah. I was being interviewed by the Mayo Clinic for a position down in Florida at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. Again, they their motto is three doors, one Mayo, right? So, same standard of care, whether it's Rochester, Scottsdale, or Jacksonville. And I was being interviewed for, re recruited um, to be a, um, an administrator. Tip, it, was, it, it was one of two, endocrinology or, or neuro, which are both areas that I've done. And I got a call from the University of Pittsburgh. Now remember, I was really active as a volunteer, so they knew me, but I got a phone call from my vice chancellor um, of institutional advancement. Cindy, we heard, a birdie told us you might leave Pittsburgh. And I said, yes. We don't think you should. And I said, well, wait a minute. I'm not an academic. I am a volunteer. I know you guys love my alma mater, all that kind of stuff. But I don't do that. I, I'm, 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 I'm fundraised for golf outings as a volunteer in different places. Nothing this real serious. We think you should come talk to us. So I did. And I basically got to write my job description, which was really great. And um, Al Novak was my great mentor and now friend and my vice chancellor. And I was and I was able to be an associate. I was hired as an associate vice chancellor. So I handled all of the operations because I did operating things in hospitals. That was easy to translate, right? So I had all those same back office operating things in an institutional advancement type of mission, got those things running real smoothly. And I said to Al, okay, I'm bored. Give me something to fundraise for. So that started me into fundraising. And I started getting a portfolio and having some wonderful key niche areas. And I found out how much I really loved doing that as well. So you went into fundraising without coming up the ranks through fundraising. You're in the healthcare world. You get a portfolio. And so what'd you do on the first day when you had those list of names sitting in front of you? Well, first of all, um, to rewind, you're right. I did not come up from annual fund, student caller, major giving, principal, get nothing. That was a little daunting because I had... Who is this person and why would she jump? How'd she catapult, catapult, right? So again, a little harder. I am a hard worker. So I had to work hard to earn that respect from everybody. They had to get to know me, right? And that worked. Con concurrently though, I went to some different universities that were at the time aspiration peer schools of the University of Pittsburgh. And I spent several days with their teens. And I interviewed them, took copious notes. What do you do in research? How, what are the things that you do? What do you do in back office gift processing? What do you do in technology? What do you do in major gifts, principal gifts, donor relations, everything. And then I also went to some, like a, a week long seminar kind of thing. Who, I mean, and I who'd you go visit? This is, pardon? 
Who'd you go visit? Who are some of the people you met, if you recall some of those meetings? Oh, my, my favorite places were Bob Sweeney and the University of Virginia, UVA. And again, UVA has about the same, they're a public institution. They act private, very proud of that for them. About the same number of addressable alumni, but they raised double what Pitt raised, double, and had about a double number of staff. Pitt had like five or six researchers, they had 15. And I mean, I was just blown away by it. And again, interviewing those folks and understanding what all that looked like helped me think about structure. So I think structure, process, outcome. It's a pyramid, just like the gift pyramid, but structure's really fundamental. And oh, by the way, that same structure, process, outcome very much correlates with the scientific process, which I used for my whole first career in healthcare. So if you understand the structures that are there across the different places, then you understand what things make sense and how can you apply it to your universe. Pitt knew, we knew that we would not have the budget to suddenly go ahead and hire like they did at UVA. But I've learned from their structures and we made some changes organizationally, which really helped us to then propel in a different way. We were within um, a billion dollar campaign. We were going so, so strong. We extended it to 2 billion and exceeded that in, in less than less than the amount of time. And I, I think that really helps again, full team effort, but the team realized, look what we could do. And they didn't realize what they could do. And sometimes you have to hear that from other people outside. And I will tell you, when you're trying to sell that to trustees and other people to get more money to be infused, because you have to spend money to make money, you have to. And that's where I continue. I think one of my big things is we, as an advancement, have to make sure we're investing properly in our people, because that's the only way you're going to be able to develop those strong relationships. People give to people. And so we have to make sure we understand that really well. So. And so when you think about structure, process, outcome, you could apply that to literally a single portfolio, right? Absolutely. To your portfolio, you could apply it to the entire annual giving operation. What are some examples when, because I'm guessing if your staff, when your staff listens to this, when you said structure, process, outcome, they all started nodding their heads because you probably said that before, I'm going to guess. <laughs> and, yeah. and so when you think about times when really breaking it down that way, applying the scientific method, focusing on the structure, the process, and the outcome have generated the kind of results or improved results, do you have examples that come to mind either at an individual gift officer portfolio or something broader? So one of, one of the things that's really clear and straightforward, Pitt had never done um, fundraising for a specific unit. In this case, for example, the African-American community. And so that was one of my first jobs. Cindy, go and fundraise for the um, African-American Alumni Council. Well, first of all, you had to figure out if you pull the data, right? You make data-driven results. The data, we didn't have people that we knew 
were people of color, they weren't coded in the system as being any, any of any color. So you didn't know, even though you knew those people as colleagues and alums, they were not in the system. So you'd pull a report and it would show this yeah, a very small amount when you knew there was a much larger number. So there was a really big, my first effort was fix the database, go out to the public of the alums and ask, will you tell us your ethnicity? Because we're trying to do this, this, and this. Hmm. And then have the staff code them in so that we could get it accurate. That took time. And then I had to go with a portfolio out on the road and listen, listen, listen. Because people of color back, and this was how many years ago? I'm in my ninth year here at WVU, which I want to talk about them. <laughs> but this is the past that kind of makes up my fabric. But, you know, I had to listen to those folks. They're very good friends of mine now, still are to this day. They did, they were discriminated against when they were in college. People, I mean, even back then, they were in their six, late 60s and 70s. They have capacity, but they didn't trust their alma mater because they weren't treated properly. Now, fast forward with this, with great opportunity and effort for DE&I, like across all of higher ed, which is really helpful, we're starting to listen in general and much more broadly about making sure that people are heard so that there can be trust built so that people, everyone can give back to something that matters to them. And so here at the WVU Foundation, similarly, we said we had to do a couple of different things with our alumni association, partnering with the alumni association, partnering with some different areas that said, okay, what kind of things are out there that we have not heard? And so we've had to go and let folks with some very, we have some very specific things that we recognized that were necessary. Um, and in one, one area was healthcare and the, the, the medical students, nursing students, dental students did not have an appropriate simulation lab to be able to really get all of their hands-on practice before they go to the patient, right? Well, you know, we had to go listen and listen and we found a fabulous couple who stepped up and stepped in to say, and she's a retired pathologist and said, I didn't have that. I think these, these students need it. We're gonna get behind that. So you have to find the, the, the problems and then figure out the solutions to those problems, right? And that's a lot of what we do here that has helped to make us, we just, we're just so blessed because we're blowing the socks off of every, year over year on our goals. Um, and one last thing I'll tell you is um, because this is a small state, when tragedy happens, it, it hits the whole state. So in 2015, big flood, floods come through and was it 15 or 16? I think it was 16, January or June 23rd of 2016. I'll correct myself. But I remember this because it hit the southern part of the state, Greenbrier, Nicholas counties, et cetera. The Greenbrier is down there. 23 people lost their lives. One of our donors called me on a Saturday. This happened on a Friday. 
a donor called me on a Saturday and said, Cindy, what are we going to do? We, the foundation, what are we going to do with WZU to help our colleagues and fellow West Virginians to help them through this tragedy? And we did, he, he said, I will match every dollar up to a certain amount. And we raised about 1.5 million in, in less than 48 hours. I mean, it was just getting all hands on deck, recognizing what the power of mission and purpose and teams can do even in a short window like that. So let's talk about, I mean, that's such a great example. And it really sounds like the urgency of the ICU meets philanthropy. Um, yeah. And uh, and so you've got a balance of, you know, when tragedy strikes, what can we do to help to how do we build a 10 or 20 year vision? Or if the vision exists, how do we then go connect the vision with the impact with the donor to create opportunity and, and transformation. And it sounds like from our prior conversation that you all are running at a really rare level of efficiency at the West Virginia University Foundation. And I'd love to just get your perspective on being in the midst of that billion dollar campaign um, and just you know how you prioritize with a relatively small staff uh, versus the amount of capital you all are raising. Well, and I appreciate that. We are we are small but mighty. <laughs> we are growing um, like three FTEs a year in fundraisers, which is great. And we're blessed to even have those folks to join our team, which is good. But, you know, I think part of it is, is that we have visionaries at the university and at the hospital and medicine to really sit with all of us. And it's very methodically done. So the president of West Virginia University is E. Gordon Gee. So everyone knows him. He's a storied fellow, has passion and drive like I've never met before, and understands the responsibility of this massive Division I, Research I, academic institution and academic healthcare center of what needs to happen to lift the entire state. So what does that do? Then we sit regularly, and certainly now more than ever, what are the priorities that need to happen and how do we tease them out? So we're looking at them always in the area of student success. And think about it, pandemic taught us a lot. Student success is so much on mental health and helping these young people to get up out of the crazy depths of where they were so they can be successful um, in their careers, graduate and, and do well and give back. Then there's always the aspects of what does a healthy West Virginia look like? What does a healthy um, type of, of uh, West Virginian and what kind of healthcare is necessary so that there's accessibility, there's the best of the best in um, innovative opportunities to have um, better healthcare, nuances, uh, whether it's cures or whether it's incredible kinds of like whatever, a brand new children's hospital that people will be able to come from all over, the ability to have um, neuroscience where we are so close to being able to um, 
get the ability for getting Alzheimer's under control. I don't want to call it a cure yet. I'd get smacked by somebody if I did, but we're getting real. I mean, the science behind all of this is a driver to do that. And then what kind of problems are out there that we have to address? Addiction is still, unfortunately, top, and West Virginia is still top of the list of deaths due to overdoses. And that's, that's not, as a nurse, that's not acceptable, right? So we have to change the rhetoric, change the, change the way it goes. And there's money and what monies are we needed? So it's sitting down with President Gee, Clay Marsh, who's the head of all of the WVU Medicine, Albert Wright, head of all the hospitals, um, and all the deans and directors and say, what is it that you need? And then how do we set those priorities? So it's, it's, a, it's a team effort and that's the beauty of it all. Um, to get everybody rowing. And I think my job and my colleagues are making sure we row in the same direction. So that's a good thing. Cindy, West Virginia, uh, University of West Virginia is in Morgantown and you have a very distributed alumni population. Yes, there's a big group of folks in let's call it greater Pittsburgh, but DC, New York, Baltimore, Charlotte, Atlanta, it's a, you know, there are a lot of cities with over a thousand Mountaineer alumni, for example. Um, what has your experience been in your ability to engage people in a more virtual remote first manner that was mandated during the pandemic? We're now here in June of 2022 and Airports are packed and hotels are booked and people are back out in the road. You are, I am for sure. Yep. But where do you see things balancing out and any lessons learned as you reflect on maybe your personal experiences, building relationships virtually, the opportunity to bring in President Guy to conversations that perhaps he never could have been a part of and what that might mean for scaling stewardship in a more personalized way when you're not just reliant on the president's travel schedule. Right, um, that's a great point. I will tell you the lessons that we've learned in the last two and a half years really have been, they have transformed the way we do our work, the way we do our business. I don't think philanthropy will ever be the same. Now, that said, it's still about relationships. And I hold fast and true to that because people give to people. Well, how do you develop a relationship? So what we have found was the virtual opportunities, especially if somebody's older or if they're immunocompromised, right? They're not always opening their arms going, sure, I don't know you, but come on down to Summersville, West Virginia, or, um, you know, uh, Vero Beach, Florida, or, you know, Palo Alto, California. Um, but what we've done is we, ha we we've, uh, have divided our country up in lots of different places. We have our regional development officers, like a hub and spoke approach, where we have our newer folks being hired to live in different key areas. So they have like their little footprint, so to speak. Again, more efficient for them. They're happy because they don't have to move into Morgantown. Morgantown's a great place to be, but not everybody wants to live here. And so that's the creative nature that I think all of us in, in higher ed, in fundraising, we understand 
got to be flexible. And we have been, we're hybrid, but we want to be a forward thinking foundation. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? That means that some people will be remote. Some of our back office people have voted. We'd like to be remote. They have to sign a form every year to get it authorized because everybody has productivity measures to still meet. But what this has allowed, not just to get results, but it's helped with the work-life balance. So if you have a staff person that feels a decent amount of work-life balance, they'll be more productive. They'll stay. We have um, a 10% turnover rate. I'm very proud of that. National average is about 12%. So I'm happy that we're below that, uh, that national average. I don't like to be average ever. I want to be better than average. So um, I, we're happy with that. But we also know some people get great promotions and they move on or they're, they become a trailing spouse one way or the other. So I think the way it's changed is we many times our development staff will meet folks first virtually and then say, let's have a follow up conversation. I'd love to come down and see you. I'll be traveling in this part of the uh, Florida or Texas. We have a lot of grads in Texas. We have 8,000 grads in California. I mean, that's a lot, right? And um, out of our 260,000 or so addressable alums, that's pretty good. But they are well, scattered I, everywhere. So I think that's, we're just, we're being creative and we're being creative in how we're saying thank you. A lot more of the virtual um, envelopes of sending the thank you messages that say, we're and, it, and they're, um, students and faculty who do these recordings and we get I get thank yous all the time from donors who say that's so creative we really appreciate it it's nicer than just an old-fashioned letter old-fashioned letters are still nice I still do handwritten notes not all of them but again I think it adds to the portfolio of how we can thank and make people feel appreciated and valued that's really well said. And I don't know if we had discussed this, but Evertrue and Thank You did merge last fall. And so we're, um, you know, one team now. And it's, it's really, um, it's inspiring to hear you say that. And the whole vision is just how do you create experiences that historically might have only been reserved for the top 1% of the giving pyramid, because that's the only group that President Gee could meet or that you could meet or that BJ could meet. And, and there's always going to be constraints on the number of true personal visits or one-to-one -one relationships that can be developed. But we are optimistic that we can create additional layers of personalization that uh, can really elevate that donor experience and drive lifelong loyalty. And so it's, um, we're still early in that process, but I do believe that this rapid forced adoption of technology during the pandemic uh, has created tremendous opportunities because it's taught, us, it's taught us all, you know, how to work, but really it's taught donors um, how to just do business across their financial portfolios and personal portfolios in a way that um, some cohorts and demographics were comfortable with, but everybody had to become fluent in, in a short amount of time. And so on one hand, I'm very happy for, uh, the opportunity to be on the road and traveling and meeting people. But 
um, equally grateful that both for work-life balance, but the opportunity to scale relationships, we've all learned so much in the last two years. We have. And I think part of it that makes me very thrilled is as long as we can keep that balance and still understand, because you can hop on, we're implementing Slack and other kinds of quick meeting things through teams and and stuff like that. It's already been around, but doing other ways to connect with each other. The connectivity is still so critical. And, you know, it's hard. People had, I think, early on the Zoom fatigue because you couldn't tell what I was doing below my shoulders, right? You have no idea where my hands are, what I'm doing, whether, you know, if I've got jeans or shorts or pajama bottoms on the bottom, right? Because you only have this first, this picture, the Hollywood squares, I used to call them. But the realities are it allowed us opportunity to diversify, diversify our thinking, our strategies. I think our bag of ideas is bigger than ever. Because now we've, I know I've added to it. I'm old. I mean, I joke and tell, hey guys, I'm old. You know, I'm, I'm 60 something. (laughs) So you don't realize I didn't have any of this early on. I didn't have any of it when I started in philanthropy and didn't even, I was, in fact, it was, I was a staff nurse in an ICU setting and, um, a major company, I don't want to say it, I don't know if I'm allowed to, so I better not. A major company would came in and we were going to automated charting, like literally online charting. So these big, they were big, computers were being placed at the patient bedside inside the ICU. And we got to help create, because we were a beta site, because we were a large tertiary hospital in Pittsburgh. We got to help create what that would look like whenever, if you're a nurse and you're you know, pounding buttons instead of writing on a piece of paper, because we used to write everything on paper to convert all of that into a computer. That was huge. But that's back. That's how like how far we've come now. Mm -hmm. And now we all have medical charts online that we can read our lab results and not even think about it. I mean, think about telemedicine and and remote nursing and all of these things that have exploded um, for sure. and, and we're in a rural part, again, a lot of rural, beautiful hills, love the state, gorgeous state, and proud to be an adopted mountaineer. But I notice when I drive the state, wow, there are some really rural places. And everybody that lives here deserves the same amount of health care and care, if that makes sense. So, Well Good. said. At the beginning of uh, the conversation, you shared a couple of points relating to that ICU level sense of urgency. Uh, that maybe you brought to the sector out of the gates and the sticky note of the patient won't die, slow down. Um, But can I ask, is there an opposite version of that, which is how do you balance that pace? How do you balance, hey, the patient won't die with but if we don't run, you know, every day that goes by that we don't raise that money or every day that goes by that we don't maximize our output is first gen students who don't get opportunity. It's facilities that won't be built. And so maybe the patient won't die, but we got to bring urgency. How do you balance that? 
Um, I call it a sense of elan. Elan is a sense of urgency without emergency. So they're different levels, right? So critical care is very emergent. So you have to work really fast. You can, the sense of elan is much more of that. We feel a good kind of pressure. It's pressure. If there was no pressure, we'd be sitting back with our feet up and, and everybody else would be, would be going by, right? And let's face it, today, the philanthropic dollar is probably less than a dollar given inflation, but the dollar is still a dollar. And so our donors have a choice where they can spend that dollar. We want them to spend it in places that matter to them. We want them to give to homeless shelters and food pantries. We do that as a team. We provide stuff that we pull in dry goods and things like that and take it up to our Mountaineer food bank. I mean, we do those things because we recognize those are the fundamental things that a person needs to survive. But we also know that we believe that every student or patient Let's talk about students first. They deserve to be able to have a college education. And so what does it take to do that? And that's how you can rally still. And it's if you develop the relationships, the urgency is not emergent. I could pick up the phone today and call three. I can won't name them, but three of my portfolio like that and say, you know what? I really need your help something that we're working on, can I come and talk with you about it? And they all, I know for a fact, would say yes. And then, and some would say, what do you need? Or one would say, how much do you need? Without even, but that's because I've worked to keep that relationship, right? So I think that's the difference. It's not emergent, but the sense of this Elon, that's motivating. We have to motivate each other. And I think at the end of the day, I like to remind our staff, um, why do we do what we do? Why? So we have a culture statement. We have vision, mission, vision, values, where we work together um, and we enjoy those opportunities to be able to make it happen. So I think that's the difference is I love it. emergent. Er Urgency without emergency and a sense of elan. And as everybody listening know, elan comes a French word from a French word meaning to dart. And someone with elan can be said to dart around with enthusiasm and a unique flair. I think that applies. Lynn, I uh, Cindy, so. I think you're bringing, bringing elan to the podcast <laughs> here today for sure. Um, all right. I want to be respectful of your time. I have really enjoyed this conversation. What else should our audience know about West Virginia uh, what you all are working on. You've referenced some of the remote opportunities. Are you hiring if people want to get in touch with you? Um, you know, LinkedIn. I mean, what's the best way to just uh, learn more? Well, I think first of all, feel free, please come to our web our website, which is fabulous. And um, that will allow you to take a look at employment opportunities. But um, I'll give you my email. And I can be happy to let people send me their information. We are hiring um, because we're looking for people who have that sense of motivation and wanting to be able to help. 
if you have a personal interior drive to help and you want to say, I want to make a difference, this is a place because a dollar in West Virginia goes further. It just does because it means so much more. We're a public land grant institution. We're not private. We're very public and we are very dependent. The state does not help the university that much. So they depend so much more on the foundation to come in. So I think those motivating factors and we are very open to hybrid situations, which I think also helps us to do that. So um, my email address is C-R-O-T-H at W-V-U-F dot O-R-G. Love it, love it. And uh, Andy, any shout outs? I know you wanted to recognize your team and I'm sure many of them are listening thinking, I didn't know all that stuff about Cindy, so. <laughs> All my staff today said, Cindy, we hope we get a chance to listen because we can't wait because it'll help motivate us if you're talking about the future or where we're going. Um, you know what? I don't want to pull any one person out because it is such an incredible team. And I am, I am blessed every single day to be able to work with such a great group of professionals. We have come through tragedy we've, with illness, with passing of loved ones. Um, both colleagues, uh, you know, that we work with, as well as spouses and parents and brothers and sisters and children in some ways. And um, we have come together. And that's what this team does. It's resilient. And I couldn't be prouder to be able to do the things we have to do to make our state and our university better. So I can't well, thank you, my friend. Your leadership is inspiring. Your passion is so clear. And I just cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today. I know a lot of our audience is smiling, listening to this. Um, you're, uh, you're a special person and you bring very, uh, very unique energy, uh, some Elon to the table. And thank you uh, for, for sharing your story with us, Cindy. Brent, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I think they'll I make that into a t-shirt, by the way. Elon, <laughs> I look forward to uh, continuing to get to know you. And with that, I will sign off on today's episode of the Raise podcast with Cindy Roth, president and CEO at the West Virginia University Foundation. Take care, everybody. Bye.